Hello and welcome to the 4 O'Clock Podcast with me, Richard Goff. On this edition of the 4 O'Clock Podcast, we're talking to Adam Goff, the editor of Spike Lee's Netflix's film Death Five Bloods and the 2019 Oscar-winning film Roma. Adam has had a fantastic journey starting out as an unpaid editorial runner on the 2006 teen spy movie Alex Ryder, Operation Stormbreaker, and rising to be the editor on award-winning features for iconic directors. Adam, welcome to the 4 O'Clock Podcast. Hello. So how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. Just holding up at the moment during this kind of uncertain times, I think, which most of us are. But yeah. So what... What do you do to keep yourself focused? Because I believe you can still work as well um, with, with the te- technology that you have to hand. Uh, yeah, I can work remotely. I actually have a full uh, 5.1 Avid setup at home, which is the room that I'm speaking to you in at the moment. So um, I'm still doing little bits and pieces on Defy Bloods for the promotion side and finishing up another project called American Utopia uh, from home at the moment. So that's your collaboration work with Spike Lee? Yes. Uh, those that haven't seen it yet, The Five Bloods is on Netflix, like Roma is as well. I, I've watched both. Uh, both are excellent. Now, look, for full disclosure, you've probably noticed that me and Adam have the same last name. He's my nephew. <laughs> but he's here as the editor of these iconic films, and that's what we're here to talk about today. So, Adam, um, you did kind of bluff your way into uh, your very first job straight out of uh, college. Can you take us from there and your journey to today? Uh, Yes. Well, I I think I had to bluff it because I had no contacts or in fact really understood the industry like that when I uh, came out of university. And even my university choices, I I could talk about it today with the degree that I did because I did a film and video technology degree at Southampton Solent, uh, which back then was Southampton Institute. And uh, even the choice in that degree uh, was related to a girlfriend I had at the time because it kept me in in closer proximity. So <laughs> I would love to say that I had some very clever master plan, but I've just been very fortunate with my choices all the way. And also at university, this this girlfriend I broke up with very quickly, but I then went on to meet my wife, uh, who was on the same course that i was on there so it's even that has paid out better than i ever could have planned for so um yeah so after university and well i should probably take a step back so i always wanted to be a film editor just from making short films where that was the part of the process that i enjoyed the most so i went to university with a, a passion for film editing and wanting to become a film editor not that i thought it would ever happen i would love to uh, land a position there or something close to it involved with film but just through uh being a kid making short films it was the part of the filmmaking process that i enjoyed the most so that- so this was on an early video recorder uh yeah it was uh, just- I, I borrowed like a vhs recorder from school and then uh, bought a little mini dv camera and just made city short films with my friend and how did you edit it at the time was it in camera live or uh, no, it was, afterwards? it was, I think the very, the very first thing I cut, which was on iMovie, the like version 1.0 of iMovie. On, really on early Mac and iMovie. Yeah. <laughs> so I even, and to get that, I had to teach, I didn't have a Mac prior to that moment. So I had to teach myself, I mean, it was Mac OS 9 and, 
and all of that. And then um, I it, it, I kind of then got Final Cut. I'm trying to think of what version it would have been then, maybe four or five back then. And that became my kind of editing software of choice. I Because it was all self-taught and it was very early YouTube, maybe even prior to YouTube back then, there wasn't that much kind of available for teaching. So my editing technique was very choppy and there was not very much style or technicality in its form, but you have to learn somewhere. And through doing that, I kind of, that was the part of the process I enjoyed the most. So I wanted to get into filmmaking or editing in particular, didn't understand what course I needed, didn't even know if it would be possible. But then uh, when going to university, I was originally going to go up to Bradford to a filmmaking course there and then changed at the last moment to Southampton Solent. Uh, because of wanting to be in closer proximity to a girlfriend I had at the time and just did that course and had fun with no real idea of what I was going to do after university getting into the industry. I probably thought I'd fall back and become a technician in some field. And then uh, immediately after university, I got married and went on a honeymoon. And as soon as I got back, I was very deep into my um, student overdraft, Uh, didn't have much money, was working at John Lewis in Southampton. And I and before even before getting uh, married, like a couple months back, I'd been sending out CVs and and was aware just through uh, my kind of side film school of just watching special features on DVDs. I had an understanding of how editorial worked. And I knew that there was a hierarchy and a ladder that needed to be climbed within the department. So I would be starting as a runner and making tea. So I was uh, applying for uh, runner in the, yeah, runner positions on films, just looking at IMDb, seeing what was there. So I must have sent in about 100 letters just during this period of just a different project, some that got greenlit, some that didn't, all using IMDb as a resource to see what was available. And then after... Uh, coming back from a honeymoon and was watching the TV one day, there was a news article where the producer of Stormbreaker was being interviewed, talking about what he was doing. And because of the budget of that movie, it was quite low budget for its aspirations for what they wanted to do. So they were trying to make this James Bond-esque, you know, teen spy thriller. With Yeah, this was uh, the Alex Ryder books, wasn't it? Which yeah. I believe now is a new series on... Amazon or Netflix remade. I, I, I did see that on Amazon, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So, so yeah, so for the for the budget of it, I was I was aware that they couldn't afford and probably have the side of crew they wanted, because this is what the producer was telling me on this this news program. So I thought this would be the perfect movie to get a job. Well, probably not a job, probably just do work experience because they would need an extra set of hands. So the the producer said it was filming at Pinewood Studios. I went on online and found the number for the Pinewood switchboard. I went on to IMDb and looked up the name of the first assistant editor. So I phoned the Pinewood switchboard and asked to be put through to the Stormbreaker production offices, which they did. And then as soon as someone answered the phone, I very confidently just went, oh, it's Adam Goff calling for Mark Sanger and editorial. Do you mind putting me through? And they was like, of course. And they transferred me through to the first assistant in the, the cutting room. And then it was this uh, guy called Mark Sanger, who I've actually went on to work with after this in, as a, his assistant. And I just quickly gave him a pitch explaining who I was, what I wanted to do. Would it be useful if I came and did some work experience for them in the cutting room, just made them tea, just saw the process. 
and they were a small enough production where they didn't have a runner and it would be quite useful for them so he said yeah so I got invited in so I went to do one week and that turned into two weeks and they were fantastic and very kind of open with their time and was were teaching me kind of how editorial worked how, like how what the paperwork was how to file it just giving me a great understanding of it and my plan following that was now I had this two weeks work experience that would go onto my resume and then maybe it would open other doors or get me other opportunities. So, and, and there's something I just want to add to this using the family connection. You may not know this story, but your dad, my older brother in the seventies, didn't have a job. He uh, left the army. He was looking for things to do. Uh, he saw a job advert. This is in Falmouth in Cornwall, where we grew up as late teenagers. Uh, he, he was a bit older than me at that point. And I was actually in the Royal Navy, but had left my first ship and was based in Falmouth, uh, which was weird because I kind of left Falmouth to join the Navy, but I had this job for a year working in Falmouth. And he, he picked my brain on nautical terms, and I wondered what he was up to. Um and then about two days later, he announced that he was now the skipper of a mackerel fishing boat working out of Falmouth Harbour. And what he had done, he'd kind of used the nautical terms he'd gone from me and gone to Falmouth Library and read up on uh, mackerel fishing and all the terminology and gone for the interview and had bullshitted enough <laughs> to get the job. And all of a sudden, he's like driving around a fishing boat out of Falmouth. Did you know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> I and that. I just how, think how it's so. <laughs> this was, I have no idea. It was uh, circa 1978. But uh, it's a very similar story to you picking up the phone and announcing, yes, this is Adam Goff. For, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree there. No, I, would, I didn't have the responsibility of a boat, though. So it wasn't. Yeah, I don't think he did either. <laughs> so first film you've done uh experience you've got the language is probably one of the hardest things is actually working around people that are doing this for a living and every industry has its own language set and just getting exposed to that can be so important so what came next uh, well after that i'd returned home to southampton and uh, my overdraft was maxed out so i i had to go back to work so i managed to pick up my old job that I had while at university working at John Lewis. And uh, two weeks later, when I was I was still planning on kind of next steps of trying to get into the film industry, I had a phone call out of the blue. And it was this lady called Jane Winkles that was the first assistant on Children and Men and said they need a cutting room runner. Uh, would I be interested? Could I come up and meet them? I was like, absolutely, I'm available, sure. And I, you know, children and men, I wasn't very excited by the title. I didn't know what it was, but it's, you know, it was a film regardless. It was, so I went up and, and met Jane and was, it, it told a little bit more about the project and who was the director and it just sounded incredible. So let alone just wanting to get into film working on, on something I was. And of course doing. that was first contact with. Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and that came about as they were putting the cutting room together quite late. So they needed recommendation. They moved into a block of cutting rooms above where Stormbreaker were. Uh, Jane knew Mark, so she went down and asked, do you know any runners available? We, we, we're looking for one at the moment. And he just happened to have had me in there a few weeks before that had proven I could make a tea, do do what was necessary. 
And that was my first recommendation that got me in my first paid job in the industry. And working with Alfonso, which <laughs> years later just turned out to be brilliant. Yeah. I read somewhere that uh, he used to get you to make mixtapes for him to help him yeah. kind of focus and relax. Yeah, um, it was so the music they were looking for. He came up with this fantastic style because of it. Um, with the film Children of Men, it was you know set in a, a dystopian future and borders were locked and there's this, this large uh, immigration theme going on. So I put that back in. So um, he came up with this idea that he only wanted British music being played on the radio in in this dystopian UK, as everything else would have been outlawed. So, of course, one of the big things with Children of Men being this dystopian uh, world where um, children are not being born now and the the youngest people on the planet are celebrated uh, because they are the youngest people on the planet uh, and children are incredibly missed by uh, the world and Britain has declared kind of independence from the world, put its foot down, a kind of early view of Brexit maybe yeah. and, and, and actually immigrants round up stuff put into um uh migration camps uh lexley heath i think it was down by the sea and and very much a british first mentality wasn't it so yeah it makes complete sense that it was a, a british theme yeah, there's some terrifying um concepts which are called out that early that have kind of mm. gone on into certain nationalist ideas that are trying to get pushed through at the moment but it's uh yeah, very powerful opening scene as well, because it opened with a news report that the youngest person in the world has just died, and he was 18 years old. Something like that, and it was in central London, and a yeah. bomb explodes when the lead character is getting a coffee. And I kind of guess an early introduction to the Alfonso Longshot. Uh, yeah, well, for me, I, I always felt that working um, my way up through editorial, that it's it's always been an apprenticeship. So I've, it's just constantly, I was just at this time of my career, I was just a sponge. I was super excited to be there. So the hours would just like water off a duck's back. It didn't matter to me. I was just loved being in the room and witnessing and experimenting. Like my opinion was never called upon apart from these, the moment you mentioned about the mixtapes, Alfonso was looking for kind of modern music and because of the age I was and he, he thought I could bring something fresh to the table. So he asked me to make mixtapes, which I did and had a lot of fun doing. Um, just so he could listen to them to see if there was any inspirations or songs that he could then use within the film itself. And it was, yeah, it was a fantastic experience, which we'll loop back to later, 10 years following that. Yes, yes, let's, I, let's I, come yeah. back to uh, catch up with Alfonso. So Children of Men, again, another uh, one of my favourite films. It's just uh, something unique about it. And, and, and the story it tells is both dark and uplifting it's a great film so where next where, where, where did you head off to work so following children of men uh well children of men i was still commuting into london i was uh so dawn ended up deferring a year at university so she had a, a final year to do so i was and dawn's your wife dawn's my wife yes and I, so I was still living in Southampton, so I, uh, so I was commuting up, and then when the hours started getting very tricky, I was staying in a bed and breakfast nearby. So after Children of Men, we both moved up to London, so absolutely committing ourselves now to to this career. We're going to get be in the area, and so we moved up, and we had enough money to survive six weeks. We'd hit first rent, 
Um, we had enough to kind of pay next month's rent, but after six weeks, if money wasn't coming in, then we were not going to be able to hit bills. If we were it's a short to... period of time, <laughs> it isn't was, it? It must well, have been really scary. Well, I was um, fortunate enough that something came up relatively quickly, but Dawn, actually, it was over Christmas, and she got a job working at Hamley's just as some additional help there, just to, mm-hmm. just so we had an income coming in. And then out of nowhere, I got a phone call from Jane Winkles that was the same Jane Winkles, first assistant on Children of Men, that uh, employed me on that film. And she was going on to a film called Fred Claus and asked if I would like to come on and, and be an editorial trainee with her on that. And I was like, absolutely. I love working with Jane. I've learned an incredible amount from Jane. I will continue to learn an incredible amount of Jane, uh, from Jane. So I, I would be there in a heartbeat and I need the job. <laughs> And that's that's actually quite important, isn't it? Again, I think I've read in researching for our uh, podcast today how um, you've made it very, very clear um, taking the work, be it indie or mainstream, uh, or moving slightly away from an editorial role to maybe a, a visual effects role, it's just been important because it's actually helped you craft what is your career today. It just kept you moving forward. Yeah, well, I, I was very fortunate just to work with incredible people, I think. So I've always had a lot to learn. Uh, Mark Lebowski, the editor on that film, was very open about his process and would explain some of his editing to me. Um, on that film as well, I also ran film dailies. So at lunchtime every so day. So film daily is? So film daily, they would print onto 35mm film the, the selects from the previous day. So we would have it, all, all footage would be delivered digitally to the editor to cut on um, a nonlinear editing system, which the editor was editing on Avid on this project. And we also, so for the DP and the director could see the full resolution of the shot and how shots looked, they would have selects printed onto 35 millimeter. And, and the then, DP is the director of photography who's kind of put everything who, together for filming who's lighting and yeah. shooting the film yeah, yeah and they could then project and look at the dailies the following day and discuss them see how the scenes are looking and just how how it's looking and the dailies process especially for reviewing dailies with a director is very rare now they directors are too busy and now it's become digital there's not necessarily the need for to go and watch it projected because they can see it quite in hd quality in the in editorial anyway so this whole screening dailies is now quite a rare occurrence so on that i was actually projecting and i was a projectionist so running those dailies so just being in it was in a truck but just being in the truck with the director the director of photography the editor the producers watching and talking about what they were doing was another that's why i was saying earlier you are hearing the language yes you're seeing how they're framing the shot and what the DP says and what the director says. And I guess it helps you. It's, you know, my main passion is photography and you become a better photographer by keep on taking photographs, looking at everyone else's photographs and studying photographs and keep on taking more photographs. It's just really a nonstop process, isn't it? Yeah, and and also I was saying like the apprenticeship element of it. Just being fortunate enough early in my career to to work with very intelligent people and and pick up a lot of their ideas and understandings. 
Yeah, that, that that's really fantastic. And there's been other films that you've worked on, and uh, you've also done work as uh, visual effects uh, editor as well. But let let's jump forward to what is probably the groundbreaking change uh, for your career. I believe that you'd finished with some Harry Potter work. Yeah, so uh, um, so I had worked my way up through uh, editorial from a trainee to a second assistant editor. And to give a little bit of um, background in what the roles are doing, when you're a trainee and or, or a, a PA or a runner, you don't have a computer, you don't have an Avid, you're not really doing any of the technical elements of it. You're doing a lot of the, you're making the tees, you're finding the paperwork, you're doing a lot of organizing. So I had learnt enough during that stage where I would be put on an avid occasionally with one of the assistants monitoring me that I um, was working as a second assistant. So I was now using the avid. I was syncing dailies within the avid, which is when you put the sound to the picture and you make subclips mm-hmm. and you prepare the bins and the footage for the editor how they like it and supply any screeners for the director and the producers. So I was uh, working as a second assistant and um, stepping away from Harry Potter, I I was still at a point in my career where I needed to kind of break, get the next step in becoming a first assistant. And my philosophy, which didn't wasn't necessarily the case or didn't pay off like that, was within a role, I could do a small film, a medium film, a large film. And when you when you do a large film, that's you're showing that you can do that job well because you wouldn't necessarily get employed in that position without the experience. So from jumping from a second assistant to a first assistant editor, I would have to go on to something with a smaller budget. So at this point, I was just, again, sending my CV round. And an editor that I hadn't worked with before got in contact with me, um, Eddie Hamilton, who was just starting X-Men. And I had actually put my CV in for doing the same role I was doing a second assistant, but he offered me the first assistant role on, on the film. So that was kind of jumping a couple of years in my career. And uh, fortunately it kind of all, all paid off and, and worked well. But Do you know, or did he ever give you the feedback of why he trusted you to go straight to that first role? Uh, yeah. He, he said that well, from the work that I'd done and what he'd heard about me, he, he knew I could do it, which I, I did understand the role and I had faith that I could do it, but I was, I think, cautious of not wanting to go into anything too big because what a first assistant role brings in is also a lot of politics. You've got to start dealing with producers and going into particular meetings. So I didn't think that I could uh, go onto something of that scale or a studio would support that hiring. But with any support, it, it all worked out fine. Yes, and and that's always a, a good story, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it it's really important to uh, sometimes take that leap because uh, your editing work could stand out. Yeah. Uh, something that what a lot of people outside of the film industry probably don't realise is just how hard it is uh, on the internal politics and and the tantrums and the. Kind of, and but we all work in office environments where that happens as well. But I could imagine that in the creative world, it can be quite focused. Uh, yes, but also the, the, when I say politics, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, like people with personalities or difficult personalities. It's also knowing, you know, when you're allowed to give the studio something, you know, because the director has a ten week director's cut and 
you know, when you give the, you know, with the dailies as well, we give the studio selects, which means when they shoot a scene with a particular angle, the director would call out the selects. So it's like, I like take two and I'd like take four. So we just send that to the studio. We don't send them everything. So it's, it's being in a position where you're managing what's going around. You know, it's a kind of situational awareness. Yes. Yeah. Who has I mean, what, who yeah, didn't have who what. Has, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. So, uh, let's talk Roma. Uh, actually, I can take that another step back from, okay. uh, so after, uh, X-Men. So at this stage, I wanted to become an editor, but I've just become a first. So I thought that's what I was doing now for a few movies for the foreseeable future. I, I was just trying to focus on doing the job well that I was doing and I hadn't yet worked out how to get the next step. So, um, after X-Men, uh, I, we'd posted actually in the U S so I was in LA for six months, finishing that. I came back to London, happy to take some time out. And I was just emailing editors that I knew that were working just to check in, just because I'd been away, just to say hi. And, and just for people that are aware, posting is post-production. post-production yes. Filming's finished and you're now piecing together the shot footage, music, any yeah. visual yeah. effects and, and stuff work, like that. All the, all the final, work, yeah. final technical yeah. elements. Something that can take longer than the film being shot sometimes as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So um so after this, uh I was just it wasn't necessarily needing to get immediately back into work. It would have been nice to just take a few weeks out and relax. So working as a freelancer, it's the work life balance is always tricky. You can work intensely for twelve months and if you want to take a holiday, you're unemployed. It's between between jobs. So it's trying to take work when you can, but trying to find out a balance of taking time out as well when you need it. So after this film, I was wanting to take a little bit of time out, but was just emailing uh, editors I knew just to check in, remind them that I was around again and available in case something came out. And I had heard there was, um, Tim Burton was making an animation called Frankenweenie. And I heard they were looking for a first assistant editor on that. So I got in contact with the editor just saying, hey, Chris, I'm available. And he sent me an email back saying, ah, yeah, so you've probably heard about Frank and Weenie, but come see me. I've got something else to talk to you about. I'm like, all right, I'm not sure what that is. So he was editing two projects for Tim Burton at the time. He was working on Dark Shadows and also editing Frank and Weenie. So I drove out to Pinewood Studios to meet up with him. And he told me that um, Johnny Depp had approached him to edit a documentary on Keith Richards and would i mind organizing the footage for him just by being the first assistant on that and getting it in place and i was super excited by that i love music i love the rolling stones so you know the documentary about keith richards sounds exciting i hadn't been involved with a documentary before so that was also very appealing to me so i jumped at the chance to to be involved with that so uh, that involved me being on it for a few weeks just going through the film breaking it down into scenes organizing it for chris the way that he likes it and then once i'd finished that because chris was still very busy on dark shadows he asked me if i could just start assembling it for him which means just doing a first pass doing a first edit just building the film into a film shape and and getting it ready for chris to then come in and and do so i started uh, doing the assembly, which was great. This is the first time I've been paid to edit at this stage. Uh, like on, on the side of being an assistant, I've been cutting short films for free, but 
I hadn't yet earned any money being paid to, to cut. Um, so that was a lot of fun, just experimenting with the footage and, and learning Keith Richards' story and getting in more archive material to build it into a documentary form. And then what? Can I just ask you a quick question there? Because um, I, I've picked up on that quite a lot getting ready for this podcast. Is it actually you that does the research work for the archive material, or do you kind of set a scene and, and someone will assist you to look for archive material? You, you normally get a lot of, there's normally a researcher on a project so there's a lot of archive that comes with it but it's the organizing in uh for this documentary there was like a seven page synopsis like a breakdown of the events that they wanted to hit for keith's life but uh, occasionally you would get to somewhere where you just wouldn't have the right footage that that would meet it so you can go onto an archive like getty images or or something like bbc's archive and download screeners so occasionally there are moments where you want to find archive to build it or you you might have a feeling there's a better option available than what you have and do it um on the five bloods when that was necessary uh we had a, an archivist that i would just give a call and then she would send me more options on this document. i guess there's a financial cost to archives oh um, yeah sometimes yes oh yeah they, it can be pretty expensive thousands of dollars per clip so so the budget side of it yeah is but, quite important but when you're well. when you're editing it and getting screeners you're not necessarily paying for those so you can experiment at least in the edit first so yeah it's like in photography I, I can get a comp of an image if i feel i want to use it for something it's low res and full of watermarks but it allows me to see if it fits into yes, the work that i'm exactly. doing yeah that makes sense yeah so uh so i was doing this process on the documentary and then uh one day the producer came in and said oh johnny would like to see some and i was like okay i wasn't exactly lining myself up or prepared for this so i quickly ran down to chris levin's on room and knocked on his door i was like chris johnny wants to come in and watch something he's like great i'm like okay all right. So um, I was completely unprepared. So I then spent the next couple of hours just panicking and working as hard as I could on the on the edits to make them presentable. And Johnny came in and it was the first time I met him and he was very gracious and lovely. And he sat down and we played the first 15 minutes of the film. And at the end, he just turned to me and went, that's my fucking movie. That's my movie. Don't change a thing. That's it. And that was the day I got promoted from uh, an assistant or an assembly editor at that point into full, fully fledged editor. So he left the room and I continued with Chris. So let's just pause there for a moment and talk through the emotions of that experience. <laughs> what was that like? Um, well, it was it was fantastic that it happened quickly because I. So how old are you around this time? Oh, this would have been two thousand six. Would it have been no, no, that was children of men. Sorry, uh, 2011. So I would have been uh, 26, I think. Yeah, which I guess in your industry is quite young. And yes, yeah, for great for for an editor. Yes, so it was um, an an awesome opportunity. And, and like I say, it was. I was very glad it happened rushed that I was told the day he was coming in. I think if I started and was told in six weeks, Johnny's going to come in, he's going to, he's going to watch what you've done. I probably would have overfought it and, and not done it. And, and in that first edit, there was a lot of my own style and technique in. And I, and I think I can describe if I'm just left to my own devices, my editing style is slightly punk rock. It can be a bit, rough around the edges and and try to kind of punch in hard on stuff and 
and that translated fantastic to a documentary about the guitarist of the Rolling Stones. So, and also something that Johnny uh, really, you know, related it's to. It's great how these, it's great how these things come together, doesn't it? And yeah, your style is yours and, and that's why people want to work with you. It, a, a lot of people probably need to think this through is that um, if, if great directors like Alfonso Cuaron and Spike Lee come to Adam Goff, it's because they want to work with you. They want your editing style because you're going to bring something to their work. It's, and it's a collaboration. Yeah, uh, stylistically, though, I would say like Alfonso and Spike have their own style. So it's not necessarily something that I'm inflecting on it. It's working with it. Agree. But they, they need to feel... Um, complimentary don't they oh yes so, yeah you need to, yeah. You need it, to work got and, to be. i think yeah. uh alfonso said to you uh, in the start uh, of you working together that he didn't want to be the only voice in the editing room he needed a second voice he needed you to speak up and say uh what you thought about the edits yes that's yes. right is it yes that was um so after so jumping forward at the end of that uh documentary which it's it's not been released. It, it's something that is still on on the back burner, and hopefully one day, or something that will see the light of day. Um, my name had made a list of available editors. So when Alfonso was looking for an available editor uh, after Gravity, uh, my name made the list purely out of recognition of working with me ten years prior. On Your playlist, the men and then the playlists. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I was given the opportunity. It's like, well, I, you know, Adam knows me a little bit. I know him a little bit. Let's let's see how this works out. And it was a little short form project, so it was a job interview. That's what it was. It was just sitting down and doing this small commercial. And very early on, which was uh, the story that you were, you were just saying, I was I just went into control mode, where I wasn't necessarily reviewing. I was just doing what he was asking me to do, just sitting at the avid. And I played something back. He asked my opinion on it. And I just said, honestly, I, was, I just, sorry, I, I wasn't taking it in. I need to go back. And he went, no. Yeah, it's like, you, you're in this room for your opinion. You're not here to control. I'm not looking for someone that can do that. If we're to work together, you need to have an opinion and always be aware and taking stuff in. I'm like, okay, understood. <laughs> Great advice, though. Yes. Oh, uh, incredible advice. And And that's kind of, you know, this is early days of me editing as well on the, on the documentary. Johnny wasn't in the room. It, I was left to my own devices a lot. And now I'm working with a director that's behind me. They're different skills that you have to evolve and adapt to very quickly. I have to talk about Robo with you because it is just beautiful. It is if people listening to this podcast have not seen it, stop the podcast now go away and watch it and then come back and join this loving about Roma because it is one of the most beautifully shot films I have ever watched. Uh, the opening scene, this long shot, this long loving shot of a floor being washed and an aircraft appearing in the puddle of water in the, uh, until you've seen it, uh, it's just incredible. And and then it just goes on and on and on with these beautiful, beautiful long shots till what for many is the best, the beach scene. Now there's a great story about the beach scene, which kind of 
takes away some of the pleasure of talking to an editor. Do you want to talk us through that? Is this the uh, the fact that the camera the drowning derailed. scene? Oh yeah, yeah the camera derails. Yeah. yeah. So um, for for this, they'd rehearsed it during the day, so I had some takes come in where they're, they're, they're not in the swimming costumes. They are in wetsuits and stuff. And you've got uh, safety divers in the water. With and you're around the set at this time of you. For Roma, I was, I went and was there for the first week of shoot while it was setting up. And then I was back in London. Uh, so I was at home uh, for that, just prepping for the post. So the way that Alfonso's worked is we're a co-editor on the project. Like during the shoot, I'm assembling and learning the footage and then uh, day one of post-production, when the edit really starts, the way that Alfonso works, we sit down together and we go through everything again from the beginning and build the edit together. So I was watching the dailies come in and from and they were shooting, shooting most of it chronologically. So the first day was that opening shot with the water, like just coming under the, the camera as, as Cleo kind of cleans the floor. And I very quickly realized the style which Alfonso was going with this with like the slow moving camera and the drifting and Cleo's constant movement in frame so it was amazing watching dailies because I didn't have a script Alfonso wasn't giving the script out so I was learning the film as the as the dailies would come in each day but the uh the beach scene was incredible because um waiting for the right lighting so the sun had to be low enough in the sky to be in the background of that shot. So in this entire shot, it's shooting towards the the sun. Cleo walks in front of it as she goes kind of back and forward. And when they, um, so they rehearsed, but not wearing their, the correct outfit. So those takes were not useful. And then they did it a couple of times. And then when they went to do it kind of one, uh, an additional time to kind of where the lighting was, and they'd had a couple of runs of it, the long uh, track that they'd laid, which is the camera on wheels running down, like a train track running down this pier, it just came off it and they couldn't move the camera anymore and the track broke and that was the end of the shoot day because they couldn't do any more. But fortunately, the take that they had done prior to that was the one that was used, which was perfect and had everything in it that Alfonso was after. And for you... Not much cutting that day. (laughs) (laughs) We spend a lot of time, like the cuts are uh, within the dialogue. So once you have the picture there, we would go through and and every time someone says a word, we would kind of listen to what they were because they're in the water. There's, you're not picking them up. They don't have radio mics on and the boom is, is a long way. So there was a lot of time spent editing their voices but I, I think I read thing. somewhere that there was a lot of background recording and crowd scenes and of extras when they were talking uh, and they were asked to talk language that fitted into the film so that it could be edited as background into the film because it was, I mean, sound as well as the cinematography is what makes that film just jump yeah, for me. Yeah, and if you had had the opportunity of seeing it in a theatre in Atmos, and Dolby Atmos means um, like cinemas normally have about 50 speakers around them. It's not just 5.1. You can put a voice anywhere in that room and travel it around, and it gives you this incredible freedom. And it was a tool Alfonso started experimenting with on gravity, and he knew when it came to Roma, he really wanted to utilize it as to its maximum potential. So when you're on set, it's, sets are quiet. 
extras don't talk they're mouthing conversations because you just want to record the dialogue of your your stars your 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 lead cast so like when cleo enters the hospital and she's she's walking in and it's this big bustling waiting room full of people you know women in labor a bit like waiting in the backgrounds doctors marching backwards and forwards and it's just silence as we're just recording the lead characters doing it but then alfonso wanted to add the energy and and everything going on and 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 a rule that we came up with is if you could see an extra within about 10 feet of the camera if their voice if their mouth was moving lines of dialogue would be written for them so we go for a process called loop group recordings where we get lots of actors in to a sound stage for a day and you just normally record what we call walla which is just background voices which is just them talking shit and you just plunk that on a scene and that creates your your atmosphere but for this alfonso would say no we're going to record a voice for that person and that person and they are talking about this and that person and he would always uh, want it to be as real as possible. So in this hospital they've gone to, there's a lot of different people from different communities. So there's different languages being spoken in it because there's a, I think there's something like 50 different indigenous languages spoken in Mexico and, and you know, South America as a whole. There is a lot of different languages and, and it was a very crucial part of the movie. So a lot of um, uh, people had to be uh, bussed in from around the country and the coast that could speak these languages so we could kind of have the the, the palette created that Alfonso was after. And none of them were actors. He always wanted real people in that role. So if someone looked like they you know, would be working in a store, we'd get someone into the store. If a doctor walked across the screen, we would bring in a doctor to record a line for, for, for that walk-by. And we'd have to record all of the, the PA voices that was coming out. And what would normally be you know, one microphone with 20 people in a room um, just making the background noise turned into getting 40 people in with individual microphones on each of them, recording them individually. So in an Atmos environment, we could pan and move voices very particularly around a room to make it very, very precise. So when you hear, you know, uh, these, these big environments, I think that most people we recorded at the same time would be three three or four uh, so it's just made up of all of these different audio parts it's such an important part of filmmaking i remember the first time i realized how important sound was in a film i'm still a teenager but i'm in the royal navy and i'm in my first dolby cinema in australia watching a film I knew nothing about because at that time being at sea for months on a time, there was just nothing to read. There was no internet. There was certainly no email and going in with a couple of sailor friends to this cinema, uh, because there was a couple of robots outside for the advertisement. It's Christmas 1977 and I'm about to watch star Wars for the first time. So I'm in a state of the art, modern Australian cinema. It's got a huge screen. It's air conditioned. The opening scene of star Wars, the big battleship coming into shot. And then it is an audience member. It travels over you. And for the first time I can hear sound behind me. (laughs) <laughs> because it was so important the way they use sound and it's kind of oh they've taken 
my cinema experience to another level it it sound is hugely important yeah to um the the experience isn't it it's so roma absolutely stunning experience did the spike lee film come straight away or was the work in between uh no so um i finished roma oh i'm just trying to think of when it must have been March, April in 2018? No, 2017. So, and then uh, it was almost the end of that year, December, where I ended up uh, getting a call from Spike. So for that year, I was, there was little bits and pieces I was picking up. I'm just trying to think if I, I think I did just a couple of shorts to keep me busy. But it was, I just got an agent after Roma had finished. So it was just waiting for the film to come out to see how um, how it would grow. I, I actually got a couple of scripts during this time, none of them that I really connected with or understood, and and I was also I was more than happy just to wait until Alfonso was ready to go again to to work and not um, waste this opportunity. So, so is post production finished by then? Yes. Or yeah, yeah. There, there was a little bits and pieces that came up where we had to make a 17 mil print so i'd go in and check some bits or uh, a pan and scan that was never used but um but really it was just uh i i was enjoying going to the festivals and just seeing a lot of this element of the of the film uh, i hadn't done this before so we went over to to venice to venice film festival for the premiere which was fantastic and then I stuck around and actually just went to the festival and just spent two weeks watching movies and then the same. So how, how does that work? Is that part of the contractual deal? They'll take you there, look after you. You're there as part of the experience to help promote the film. It depends. I've always been interested. Yeah, it depends on the project. Uh, because this was Alfonso, Alfonso would tell the studio I want Adam there. So they were like, all right. <laughs> so that was, that was great to have. Um, I had a, a friend, an editor that had a, a project there that uh, was done with Amazon Prime. And he, I spoke to him after I came back and he wasn't invited across by that studio. So I, I there is a certain element of how much they support the film and they want to do it. But um, but that was that was fantastic. I, they didn't pay for my two weeks there. They paid for me for like a couple couple nights there for the, for the premiere. And then they get you there. Yeah, and, and, then, and then we put ourselves it, yeah. up to kind of have what other fun we wanted to do but uh netflix were incredibly supportive on that and then when that film came out and started getting the reviews and started turning into this award contender um i was flown out to the states for a couple of times just to do uh public like awards publicity doing q a's and talk about the movie and but, but you did pick up quite a few editor awards didn't you for roma from american film critics I, I, yeah organization fantastic critic uh, award for it and got a, a lovely bunch of nominations as well so i got to, yeah got to go to the baftas and all of that my favorite part of the uh baftas when um you're all upon stage accepting the award is i don't know if you were paid to do it or it's just a natural adam golf experience was the really loud whoop 
Uh, and and please make sure you look for Adam Goff online so you can visualize this because because Adam is a larger than life character that has the hair of Jesus and the beard to match, and he's standing behind Alfonso. And as the uh, accept the award, there's this massive guttural whoop comes out, and I I couldn't be prouder of my <laughs> my Gene Paul at that moment. It, was, it must be wonderful to do these awards. Uh, with, with this one, it, and also we were just very close as a, as a team on that movie. Everyone was so lovely. It was you know use the word family with this collective that you've the work with for a year and a half. Everyone's very close and supportive. You know we all love each other. So it was the award shows. It's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of bullshit going on those things, <laughs> and and it's very interesting, you know. Oh, and that's not you, Adam. So I just wonder how <laughs> that fits into well into it, how you cope. It's um, it, I I found it a very there's elements I like. I, I made some great friends and met some lovely people in it. There's some people that aren't quite or get a bit competitive about it and don't really talk to each other. So, but then the film actually kind of picks up friendship groups if this makes sense so roma we were a really yes. collective group but we you know we love the black clansman team and you know we got on well with the vice team and, and other films and it becomes like this you know little kind of uh you know circle of friends and you know everyone's kind of supporting each other and and for that um yeah it was just very exciting when when that film won and going through it all for the first time <laughs> Adam, thank, thank you for sharing that experience. Uh, can we just quickly talk about um, The Five Bloods? Uh, at the recording of this podcast, it's very much uh, in the critic's eye. It's only been out on Netflix for a couple of weeks. It's getting actually fairly positive reviews. There's always um, a few negative ones, but overall, very, very positive. And it's telling a very important story at what is a very important time in the world, the whole Black Lives Matters movement. And so Spike Lee's film is kind of of the time and of the moment. And it's 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 a hard but fascinating film to watch. Um, but one of the things that made me smile was in researching for today, the person that wrote on Twitter, oh, just give Adam Goff the Oscar already. <laughs> so someone clearly likes your work on the film. But... Yeah, so Spike Lee, he he he's asked you to work with him. Uh, yeah, can we go from there? So he was he was um, a fan of Roma. So when he was looking for an editor for his upcoming feature, The Five Bloods, uh, he was having a conversation with my agent that represents a lot of editors, and they were just talking about films that he liked. He mentioned Roma. My agent said, "Oh, I represent Adam, the, the editor on that." And then Spike was like, "Get him on the phone." And then, like the rest was history. It, it, but you had no warning about this film, no, did you? No, it, it just... it, which was great because then you know, like the opportunity of editing for Johnny Depp, it was. I like the kind of the band aid being ripped off expression. Just otherwise, if I'm just left with my mind too long, I'm sure I'd fuck it up in preparation. So <laughs> just drop, yeah. drop me into it. That was fantastic, and and also it was a fantastic time December because we were still had, doing this whole award circle thing. So knowing someone else there, Spike on the award circuit, because he would suddenly come out to me and start talking about the movie. and Because uh, he wanted to talk about his project, <laughs> yeah. didn't he? he so I can imagine, share the ideas. I, looking at the technology um, of The Five Bloods, um, I was fascinated to see that some of the footage that you cut in to the film is actually being shot by one of the actors in the film. Yes, 
with uh, I think it was a Super 8 camcorder. Yep, yeah, on film. So you were using multiple formats. I mean, uh, how did that kind of work in practice? Because it just works. It's a really good storytelling um, tool, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, this is this is um, uh, Spike's visual language. He likes to get as many different formats in there as possible. He He's also a fantastic documentary maker, and it's something which his style of film making has been clashing more with this documentary style over like recent time. And he's bringing more of that into play. So, and so the Spike Lee's documentary experience really jumps out because the Muhammad Ali opening sequence, when he's talking about why he is a conscientious objector, why he won't serve uh, in Vietnam because of the way uh, the black community is treated in America and how they're being expected to, go to war in Vietnam, a place that they don't know the people and those people aren't shouting and being abusive to them. And then it cuts into a, a great song from Marvin Gaye. And you kind of know this is going to be a different experience. Yes. And and it was very interesting in the script for this because Spike didn't go into detail of the archive that he wanted to use or in fact how it was going to be done. But his script just says, the opening sequences are very important to me. We need to get the audience in the right headspace setting up the movie a lot of time and detail will be put into this opening sequence and that's all the script says so uh, it was that that's his note yeah. that's what he wants and that was one of our i remember it was the day of the baftas so spike was over in london and he gave me a call in the morning and was like let's let's have a meeting i'm like okay and i've got to get ready you know I, I take a while to get ready. I've got lots of hair and I'm, I'm, no. <laughs> I'm a, it, it's not something that uh, I, I'm very quick at. So, um, and I, and Dawn was a little frustrated because something that was lovely, you know, Netflix sends around a hair and makeup artist for both of us to help us prepare and all of this. And, and I'm out the door going, got to go and speak to Spike. See you later. She's like, what? Hey, huh? <laughs> this is Dawn. <laughs> but uh, so we, we sat down that morning and just spoke about ideas for the opening sequence about what, you know, what we wanted it to cover. It was very important to set the tone of the, of the war and the atrocities of the war and, of course, there's very famous imagery that you, you can't ignore, like the, the napalmed girl, the VC being shot in the head. You know, all it, it, it clearly hit the mark. Um, there's a Vietnamese film critic, uh, Phun Li, who recently put a thread on Twitter about his film review I, I, of, I read of The Five Bloods. Yeah, yeah and uh, what's really good is that he really makes it a standout thing about the opening sequence, the fact that it's different to all the normal Vietnam films. It's, you know, uh, using Marvin Gaye instead of the kind of more oh, opening big, wide Vietnam. And, and yes, it, it makes it different. But the whole film is an enjoyable experience it's a hard watch but it's an important hard watch but i'm a royal navy veteran so there is one scene for me that absolutely jumps out it's very early on in the film in the first seven minutes and it put the biggest smile on my face and that's the one that takes place in the apocalypse now club okay. which i believe is a real club it is, yes yeah, real yeah club and um it, it's when the 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 four leads who are kind of 
in the 60s, 70s, they've returned to Vietnam for where the story unfolds and they hit the dance floor and they're dancing like they're in their 20s again. And the reason why that jumps out at me is uh, being a Royal Navy veteran, I was sunk in the Falklands War. I get together with my uh, ex ex uh, shipmates every year. This was the first year we couldn't because of COVID-19. And every year where the age that we were in 1982 when we were sunk on our ship. <laughs> so that yeah. scene just put the biggest smile on my face. Uh, the use of uh, Marvin Gaye's got to give it up. You know, Marvin Gaye, one of my favorite uh, artists and the lighting and the smiles on my face. And I just thought, yeah, that that is really capturing what it's like to be a veteran of any type getting back together with your buddies. It, it was a fantastic scene. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's so it's uh, it just sets them up so well as well. It's a beautiful, a beautiful uh, non-verbal moment. That, that exactly. Yeah. And it, 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 can, it gets you ready for the film. So, so thank you. So let's just talk quickly about um, the technology that you use and uh, how it all pieces together. The fact that you could be at home editing, is kind of fascinating, which I think you might have had to do a little bit with the lockdown uh, to finish stuff off for Spike Lee's project. Uh, yeah, so um, like I say, even on Defy Bloods now, I'm still doing little bits and pieces from home. So I can, I have all the media on a drive. I can open up the project, make an edit or check something out and then send a reference. So, so if you're at home working on the project, are you, I, I, not a film editor. I'm aware of certain language because of my interest in photography and filmmaking. Um, but do you work on, is it something like a proxy? So you're seeing the film as is, but you don't have the full 8K, 4K, 6K image on your computer, but you have a, a composite proxy of it that you can work against. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And this is, you talked me through that. I'm fascinated. Yeah, by yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's, it is evolving though. So at the moment I'm kind of in this and I can talk about the next project a little bit where I've got like one foot in and one foot out, but um, just for the scale of all the media, you know, if I was to have drives with all of the 4k raw files on from the cameras, I would need terabytes and terabytes and my computer just would not be able to play anything and sound effects with it. It would just fall over very, very quickly. So in fact, I read this morning, uh, there's a, a great cinematographer and filmmaker called Philip Bloom that I follow on Twitter. And he was talking about a press release where they'd said, uh, our new four terabyte SSD drive can hold all your film footage for the year. And he went, from what year? 1926? <laughs> yeah, a four terabytes might get me a day's worth. Of footage. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, not not um, 10 weeks worth. But um, yeah, so what we do is we we send it to a company which backs up at full resolution all of the original camera files so this is straight from the shoot straight from the shoot they will make copies onto an lto tape which is a, a yeah so an offline device and then have it on drives as well and they make uh, what you're saying proxies which are lower resolution images but in my case i edit on avids for the five bloods i use a codex called uh, dnx 115 and from these proxies, I edit, and it has all the same metadata. And metadata is, it just carries across time code and information. So what I do in the edit, they can then online, which they can link it back to the original files to create the film. 
in its so you can be your edit but when it goes back to them they can apply it to the master yes. uh, files and, and, and does that improve in also include like uh adding the look of the film like LUTs, i think uh, in, in our, in our like proxy that. a LUT is put on and then when they get to the final grade they just do what they're doing so you know that that, that LUT gets thrown away because it was put on very quickly and they spend some time to regrade it but this is the rendering of the final yeah product yes but on like for, for roma as an example you were saying it was showing color which we needed to do for the visual effect element so we could have green screens and blue screens so the vfx could do their work but i was my dailies came to me in the avid in black and white alfonso, i think that was an important part of alfonso's process yeah, he never it? wanted he, he saw color. the film in black yeah. and white. yeah because he saw the film in black and which, white which was, and as a photographer i totally understand that because there are days where i consciously use a black and white film or put my digital camera to black and white because I'm telling a different story. Yeah. I don't want color to be in the way. I don't want to convert it afterwards. But so, something that we do in the Avid as well, and this is a part of my process. And I think this is comes from my technical background as an assistant. And as you were saying earlier, a VFX editor where I like to mock up comp everything as much as possible. So if there's a green screen, I'd replace a green screen. It's not, going to be what the final v effect is but i would put something you know uh, something out of a window or just so when you're editing the film working on it with a director you're trying to look at it as you kind of you want to visualize it as it should be you don't want green screens in there to put you off you're trying to work on very finite ideas to get these rhythms correct so you, you know if there's a car passing through a window that might change your rhythm because you want to cut on that car just passing you know if there's a green screen in there then you know, your rhythm is going to be slightly different. So you're trying to finesse the cut to make it as close as possible to the to the final film. So that was, a, I remember one day on Roma, because all my footage was in black and white, where Alfonso said, you need to replace that blue screen. I was like, what? Blue? <laughs> I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's all grey. I can't just key, key it and, and do that. And I didn't even know there was a blue screen out the window because I was looking at it in black and white. It didn't look like that. So... I had to get a few shots in in color so I could then do some basic keywork and keywork just means replacing a green or a blue screen uh, for that. But then that is part of my process. So then on Defy Bloods, uh, they're, you know, basic stuff. If there's a green screen, I, could, I on a first pass, I just turn it into black. So it looks like darkness or something. It's not this big glowing off-putting texture in a frame. It's something that you just try to hide or you make it a neutral color. But um, for the battle sequences, for example, I spend a lot of time just putting muzzle flashes and gunshots in very early on because even that informs the rhythm of an edit and for doing it. And, and actually, we had a lot of evolution even before turning it over to VFX because it was shot one way where this whole first gun battle sequence when this helicopter crashes early on, where everyone's doing like single fire. It's not even burst. They're kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm mimicking pulling a trigger, but like pop, 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 pop. And Spike came in and just went. It's called the technical word for it, because being yeah. ex-military, it's called the crack and thumb. Crack and thumb. Like yeah. Cracking as in release the kraken. Uh, no, oh, crack, crack and okay. thumb. So when you pull the trigger, that's the crack. Okay. And the thump is what it's like on the receiving end. Oh, okay. Oh. And, and as trainees... Uh, because I was a weapons instructor in the Royal Navy, it's part of our kind of exposure to what it's like to be around weapons. We had to go and lie on the ground of a firing range and they'd fire over us. Okay. 
real life rounds so that we could understand what crack and foam okay. and what it was like. And, you know, and I was in the Royal Navy, not in the army, and we still had to do that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's fascinating that um, going back to uh, your editing yeah. under Five Bloods, that putting early muzzle uh, shots well, in there and actually helps set yeah, the scene. Well, this works as well because, you know, muzzle flashes aren't always picked up on camera because of the the shutter speed that it goes like a, a muzzle flash yeah they could be out of sync completely you, yeah you probably get it 25 percent of the time and sometimes yeah. it looks like a flame on a lighter sometimes it looks like an erupting volcano so there's this so you want to kind of um create this visual style of putting all the muzzle flashes in correctly when the guns are going off so i'd work off the soundtrack to see when that's doing it and uh, so to create a consistency and very early in the process, Spike was watching it and went, no, no, I want everyone shooting full auto. I'm like, what? Which they're not. But because we were doing this comping and we hadn't turned it over to visual effects yet, it meant in the Avid, I could add more muzzle flashes and extend, extend the sound effects to create this more kind of intense uh, battle sequence for that. When, when we got that attention that attention to detail from spike is actually really quite important yeah. because the soldiers the vietnamese uh the american soldiers deployed to vietnam would have been using m16s yes. and there's no way an american soldier fired an m16 in single shot <laughs> they always fired them in auto yeah. uh you fire a group of up to three it's uh, it, it's called sympathetic firing where you actually pull the trigger out about three rounds out shift target press again uh, and that's the way they're trained so they definitely wouldn't have been firing in single shot especially when you're in panic mode you, you want to get as many rounds out of that gun as possible so he was spot on there yeah. And it was great that that decision came in earlier because that completely, you know, the, the edit completely responds to it. So originally it felt kind of quite tight because you're waiting for the gunshots and there were these gaps where you would put in other sounds or call outs. And as soon as the guns are just constantly just going, duh, 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 it's like, well, that shot feels about eight times too long because, <laughs> you know, he's shooting off like magazines. So you just... But you were putting you would you were putting those in yeah. as editor yeah. at, at this stage. So, at, okay, and then it will be picked up by a a, a visual effects yes. art, a editor later. Uh, then we so you kind of yeah. So we give that. You're setting the scene. Yeah. So uh, said, yeah, okay. So for this sequence, it was this company in uh, Canada called Mister X that actually did a lot of the work on Roma as well. So I was already a big fan of their work. And what was great with what we'd done in the Avids, we then had a blueprint to turn over. So they might not necessarily know what you need, but we just said, right, you know, where, where put a muzzle flash? Look where we put muzzle flashes. So, And they'd be responsible for the visual and sound. No, sound was a completely different sound. Sound's yeah. always done by a different Full team. different department. We use this uh, company yeah. called C5, Phil Stockton. It has long history of working with Spike, who's fantastic, that did all of that. And I believe this comes out of the original word Foley artist. Foley artist? Uh, Do you sound, or is that kind of a different no, thing? Foley is within sound, so sound covers multiple things. So in sound, you have a dialogue editor, dialogue supervisor. So they go through all of the sound, like the voice recordings from the film, and clean it up. They put filters over it. They will remove any pops or any hiss and just make the dialogue sound great. Uh, then you have a sound effect editor that would then go in and do all the gun gunshots and anything sound orientated. Then you have Foley, which you would just bring up a, mo a moment ago, and they go through 
and do any kind of like any visual incidental sound effects which are on screen they'll do if someone picks up a glass and puts it down they record that they when people are walking they record clothes moving they also record their footsteps so they record this this whole big like original soundtrack of movement so this confirms that if people wonder why post-production is huge yes. it's because of all of these reasons yes. so that when you're sitting in a dolby atmos cinema you get the full experience yeah. and you can capture fantastic foley like footsteps on like during the shoot which is great if you could you always want to use as much original sound as possible but if you're going to dub your movie into a foreign language you want the ability of just turning off voice so you you're still going to want all the footsteps, all the movement, even if it was something that would have been on the original recording of the voice, because you need to remove that all and replace it with French or Spanish or something else. So a lot of that work goes into other versions of the movie. It might not even necessarily be something that we would use in our mix in the English language version. So Adam, technology is clearly a big part of what you enjoy in being a film editor. As we kind of come towards the end of this four o'clock podcast, it, the world is a different place right now. Most people are self-isolating, working from home. Cinemas aren't open. There's some really interesting um, collaborative productions now appearing on TV uh, and online where people are using Zoom video conferencing or just remote recording to do some collaborations. Uh, there's a product called Stage on the BBC at the moment. Um, Neil, T I think it's Neil Tennant and uh, Michael Sheen where they're doing like a TV show from their homes using... So we are seeing things evolve and it is really fascinating to watch. Hopefully we're going to see shooting start again on films and we're going to move forward but technology is changing one of the things we were talking about before we started recording this podcast was how much i enjoy disney's mandalorian and how industrial light and magic and epic games unreal engine have collaborated in producing new kind of virtual sets which are beyond green screen although some green screen technology is there to allow them to create these wonderful universes but the cinematographers and the directors are actually seeing the real scenes behind the actors, which they wouldn't normally if they were using green screen. Is this something that excites you as a industry professional? Is it something that is the natural way forward? How do you think it would affect you as an editor? The, uh, what you're explaining with the Mandalorian excites me because of its practical nature. Something as an editor, I like editing you know, re reaction and drama and physicality with actors. I've I've worked on, you know, as an assistant on X-Men and Harry Potter movies, and there's always big green screen scenes in there where there's a lot of digital doubles. And, and I'm not as interested in editing that, or I definitely wouldn't be interested in editing a, a film which is completely uh, comprised of that. Little bits here and there uh, for, for story purposes, yes. But um, I do think that, especially with this new digital set technology, we're going to have a very, very, there's going to be a big push and strides made in uh, digital doubles, I think, and crowd work. Like crowds are going to become visual, especially with the worry of like, social distancing and getting people together. The work that's gone on over the last couple of years of making digital actors 
which is still borderline. I, I don't think I've seen one yet, which is sold on me, but you know, like Princess Leia in the last couple of Star Wars movies and, and elements like that. So I think a lot of R&D and a lot of resources right now is going to be pushed into making more um, computer uh, photorealistic humans and especially on mass for crowds because you're not going to be able to do crowd work easily. That's fascinating. Actually, I think you're spot on there. Um, keep the primary shooting, uh, cinematography and, and film work on, on the lead actors, the scenes that are close up and featuring, but let's use digital doubles yeah. for the scenes behind them because that would actually address all the concerns about big average. And I, and I think there'll be a lot of um, just very basic VFX techniques you can use as well. So you could... Uh, on a green screen or in an environment you could do it but it would involve more work you could have two actors talking two meters apart and then in visual effects you could just bring them closer together so i think you could still shoot using social distancing and use vfx to make that easier of course there's there's times where that doesn't make any sense but i think if you're going to get if someone hasn't been able to um do the correct amount of isolation you could just shoot actors individually and put them together into scenes. And I think there's visual effects are going to help us um, just get running again. And we're going to be more reliant on VFX for the, the most basic of, of scenarios of just getting actors or, or people in a scene together uh, moving forward. That's really interesting. Adam, our journey on this four o'clock podcast has come to an end. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to wish you all the Thank best you. in your future projects. And I look forward to maybe seeing you on that Oscar nomination list for next year for the five bloods, Adam golf film editor, my nephew. Thank, Thank you. you uncle. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this edition of the four o'clock podcast with me, Richard golf until we listen together again. Goodbye.